Who the bloody hell's that? Should indeed. You're listening to the Corona Diaries, a sometimes random and often irreverent attempt to understand the psyche of singer Steve Hogarth. Hello and welcome to chapter 45 of the Corona Diaries. And before we start, because it's going to work its way into conversation, it is early in the morning by our standards. It is before nine o'clock or about nine o'clock, which is, which is fairly obscene, isn't it, it's to be honest, age? rock and roll hours. Absolutely rock and roll, which is my fault because I've got something at 10 o'clock, so we've got a hard stop, and so it's my fault we're doing this this early. But it's uh, it might affect the flow this morning. I always think of Keith Richards. I've probably said this before, but he, he, he was doing this album in Los Angeles and they, they used to start at like nine in the evening recording and then, you know, as the album wore on, then it was ten. And then somebody would be a bit late, probably Keith, and, and it, you know, it slid back to midnight. And then he said, I knew I was in trouble when I was when I was driving into the studio one morning at, at quarter to eight and I realised <laughs> I, I was on proper hours. <laughs> so we had to call a halt to it and start again at nine in the evening. <laughs> <laughs> that's something special when you've gone all the way through being that far late that you end up getting back on normal you're, you're time. You're driving into work with the rush hour going, what the hell's going on? Oh, you've got to love Keith. You have. You've got to love Keith. So um, a few bits of update before we get started. Uh, you're, being, you're being jabbed, aren't you, this week? Your little prick and all that? I am, yes. Yes, one little prick. Yeah. Um, but I won't take it personally. No, and uh, and it'll all be over, or well, it won't. Uh, with a bit of luck, I'll continue living. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'd be a, that'd be a real, real disappointment if the jab killed you. <laughs> <laughs> It's not a very rock and roll death, is it? Well, I suppose <laughs> no. it is if it's opium, but otherwise <laughs> not. I always have told you this that I always hope back to Keith Richards. That I wished that not wished, but it'd have been somehow poetic if he if he died when he fell out of that coconut tree. Have I told you that? No. Because having having done the level of abuse and done to his body what that guy's done to his body, it would have been somehow fitting if falling out of that coconut tree would have actually been the end of him. I don't want him to die. Obviously, I think he's amazing, but that impacted directly on me. Keith falling out of that coconut tree. Are we underneath it? No, I was. Uh, I'd got a mate who who ran a very big gig in Barcelona called the Palace San Jordi, which holds about eighty thousand people. It's the one where I, I I had the dreadful incident in front of the King of Spain, um, but um, that one, um, the Stones had booked in to rehearse for five days in there for their forthcoming tour, and my mate Gabriel said, "Oh, you should come over and you can just." 
you know, I'll get you in. You can just sit at the back and watch the Stones rehearsing. I said, oh, that'd be amazing. Oh. And then Keith fell out of the tree and oh. they cancelled the whole lot. So uh, that, that was uh, that was my chance to watch the Stones, you, you know, and be a kind of fly on the wall. That would have been a laugh. Oh, yeah. That would have been... I mean, I know there's a lot of talk about them, you know, and, and whether they can still play or this, that and the other, but there are a lot of reports when they play small venues, because they still play small venues as they go around, they'll bug it, they'll do these odd club gigs and what have you, and apparently they're just incredible in a small venue. Yeah, just well, Charlie's a great drummer. Mm. Um, you know, I don't. if Keith still manages to play guitar with all his gnarly, gnarly hands, because he's got a lot of, um, what do they call it? With the with the joints, um, arthritis. Arthritis. I can't get a word like arthritis together at this time in the morning, Anthony. <laughs> but he has. He's got a lot. Of <laughs> so I don't know if he can still whack out the blues chord. Maybe, maybe they're they've permanently set <laughs> in a kind of blues shape. <laughs> he just moves them up and down. <laughs> His hands are always playing a twelve bar blues. <laughs> but Mick's a force of nature, isn't he? I mean, he's oh, yeah. really incredible. Um, it, I've got a, it must be I've got amazing a, seeing them in a club. A friend whose partner is a chiropractor who's done some work on Mick, and apparently he's got the frame of a forty-year-old. Yeah, he's got literally, he's just—he is just unbelievable. Yeah, he does. He works out and keeps himself fit, doesn't he? He's probably mm. probably does yoga and and you know he's probably been rebuilt with money several times as well, like Steve Austin. Like yeah. the bionic man. Yeah, or my mini. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That's Most... what I think of when I think of Mick Jagger. He's just like your mini. <laughs> Mostly new, just with a couple of old bits remaining. <laughs> <laughs> Nearly original. <laughs> That's that's your mini and Mick Jagger. Oh. Anyway, today we thought we'd have a bit of a natter. We'd carry on because um, we kind of left the How We Live story hanging. Um, though to a certain extent we know the end. Um, it's not fame and fortune and, and champagne-filled swimming pools. But um, but we yeah. left the story hanging. Uh, I think we were talking about the band and playing with Christopher um, and the reaction. And I've forgotten the name of the keyboard player, the reaction Ra- of the keyboard player Rain every time. Is, Rain is shine. <laughs> every time... Chris went for a high note. Um, <laughs> the lady in red. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I know, I know you can't see this because obviously this is audio only, but the re- when H does that little reaction, it is, it's quite a beautiful moment. Um, so we got that far. Um, the, the album, you know, the album's out. You've delivered the album. The band's the band's being pushed out by. Um, it was CBS, wasn't it? By CBS it, it was on, on some support. Portrait leads. Records, which were a, a new little um, label within the CBS imprint, but basically all the same characters pulling the strings. Um, there's a guy called Muff Winwood who was. Um, I don't know how he got the name Muff. We'll leave that hanging. But mm-hmm. that was his name. Um, I didn't make it up. Uh, and he was Steve Winwood's brother. Um, and he was richer than Steve Winwood because he was the head of A&R at uh, CBS. So he was being paid some absolute fortune because he'd signed so many big acts and 
you know, he was one of those few people that the music business thought knew. He knows. Mm. And because Muff knows, um, we'll give him a million quid a year, you know, to be A&R director at CBS. And uh, he was a nice fellow, Muff. I had a couple of meetings with him. But there were always, it was always terrifying going into CBS because they were really, they just had the eyes on, on a hit. You know, it was like, where's the hit? Bring us a hit, bring us a hit single. And, and so you'd try and write one or you'd write something that you thought was a hit single and you'd go in and they'd just go, nah, nah, you know. Um, so it, it was hard work. Um, and, you know, as I've said before, the, they had this managing director who really should have left, left the creatives alone, but he, I think he fancied himself as having ears, even though he was an accountant or a lawyer or whatever he was. Um, and, and I think you know he came down to see us and, and and then we got dropped and so after we got dropped by um, CBS we went into a kind of weird even more nervous period Colin and I where um, at that point we were being managed by um, Christerberg's management this this is how come we ended up getting on that Krista Berg tour. Um, it was a guy called Dave Margerison. And Dave Margerison had been um, behind a management company called Mismanagement. In fact, he still called his company Mismanagement, um, which had managed Supertramp. So originally Mismanagement had managed Supertramp through all the, the years that they were absolutely massive. Um, so it was a very successful management company. They'd taken over uh, managing Chris de Berg um, and that was Dave Margerison and a guy called Kenny Thompson working together. Now Kenny Thompson um, was Dougie Thompson's brother and Dougie Thompson was the bass player in Supertramp. So it was all a little bit incestuous. And for years, Chris de Berg had been Supertramp's opening act. They used, he used to open for Supertramp. So when he started to have hit records himself with, I think he had Don't Pay the Ferryman, didn't he? And then he had that massive Christmas hit that they still play, the, the Spaceman came travelling mm. thing. Um I think at that point, mismanagement took over the management of Chris and Supertramp split and they carried on managing Chris. And then, and then I think it was Stuart Hornell at Rondor that connected us to, to Dave um, and Dave became our manager. Dave and, and, and Kenny then looked after us. Now, Dave Margerison was a lovely fella, or is a lovely fella. I think he's still around, and so is Kenny. Um, and quite, a, both, Dave was a right character. He sort of, I don't know, he was just a character. I mean, everybody's a character, but Dave was particularly a character. 
and I remember him fondly. And and it was Dave March Harrison who 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 first came up at least on my radar with the with the phrase "colors not found in nature." And he, I think he was referring. We were talking about Taramis Salata one day. <laughs> <laughs> And he went, oh no, I, I don't like that. That's the colours not found in nature. I don't, I don't eat stuff like that. <laughs> and he thought, he thought that kind of violent pink of taramasalata was was not found in nature, but had been injected somehow. And he refused to eat it. And so when I made the album "Colours Not Found in Nature" with uh, Isilda Spain couple of years back probably realistically several years back um i did actually thank dave margerison um on the on the sleeve and he probably has no idea that i thanked him and if he knew it i thanked him he probably has no idea why um but it was for that phrase that i then um injected into a song called ice pop because they also sometimes come in colours not found in nature. Um, and Dave, back in the day, uh, after CBS let us go, Colin and I, Dave then financed us and paid our, paid our living wage, the keepers alive, um, for the best part of about 18 months, which cost him a lot of money. I think, I think he blew about 30 or 40 grand on us just keeping us alive in the hope that we would write a hit, you know, and he could get us another deal. And we didn't, and he didn't. And in the end, you know, he, he, he phoned us up and said, I can't really afford to take this any further, lads. And that, that was the point at which it, it, it hit the wall. And that must have been... Um, sort of the you know the autumn getting into the winter of 1988 when when Dave said that's that there's no more money um and Colin and I thought oh you know that's that then it really has you know there's nowhere else we can take this either um we're gonna have to decide what to do next at that point I was so completely disheartened um, by that pressure to just come up with, quote, a hit song. And what the hell is a hit song anyway? You know, I mean, I would come up with things that I thought had good tunes and only to, only to hear guys going, you know, um, because I think... That, the people in the music business who are credited with knowing a hit song when they hear one are usually the people who know a song that sounds like a song that's already in the charts, and that isn't necessarily a hit. No. But the really classic songs tend to come out of a blue sky and nobody can spot it until it happens. Yeah. The public can spot it, interestingly, because the public just latch onto something, whether it's um, you know a hooky sound or a hooky melody or or something in the lyric that chimes inside them. Um, but then there are the songs that don't even conform to that. I mean, the, the classic is is probably Bohemian Rhapsody that doesn't really conform 
I mean, where's the hook in Bohemian Rhapsody? Maybe, maybe the opening, mama, da, 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 da. You know, is that the hook? Or There isn't a chorus. Um, it doesn't have a structure that conforms to any kind of hit single structure. It's not verse, chorus, middle eight. It, it's, it just meanders around, goes mental for a while, goes operatic, then goes rockist, and, and it's too long. It doesn't conform to any of the, you know, the template of a hit song, and yet it's, it, it's probably the song that, that most people would say is one of the biggest hits of recent times, certainly in the rock era. Um, so people who tell you they know what a hit song sounds like usually don't know. But the public will latch on to something and no one knows what that's going to be. So, I mean, the, 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 the famous people I've run into over the years and got to know even a little bit have nearly always said, oh, we, we'd no idea that was going to happen. We'd absolutely no idea. Um, we didn't see that coming. We didn't think that was a hit. I mean, I talk to the boys about Kaylee, they'll just go, well, we didn't even, we barely noticed it happen as it went by on the album, you know, and then um, Chris, what's his face? Um, Chris Kimsey got hold of it and re-edited it into something that resembled a, a single shape. And we all thought, ooh. You know, and then we had this massive hit. So they didn't really see that coming. Um, I was talking to Peter Gabriel the, the day that Sledgehammer went into the top 20 and he thought it was going to drop back out in the following week. So you never know. People don't no. know. Um, but one thing's for sure, whenever there is a hit, there'll be a, a very long queue of guys in the background going, I made that happen. I knew that was going to happen. There's always people who know <laughs> I mean, uh, after the fact. Uh, but nobody really knows anything. There's just Some people are just better at bullshitting than others. So um, anyway, we, we, we would go into CBS and, uh, you know, touching our forelocks uh, with our hearts in our mouths, uh, playing them our new demo of the thing we thought was, you know, was could be a hit song, whilst people like Muff when Wood would go and, uh, and send us away again. <laughs> and that kind of happened again, really, with, with, with Dave, after Dave was financing it and CBS had, had vanished. You know, I, I took Easter in and played played Easter to Dave. And he said, well, that could be a classic song, but it's it's not an obvious hit. I won't be able to get you a deal with it. You know, although mm. I can see that it's a, a really a really interesting tune. Um, Which, to be fair, actually, is kind of right, isn't it? He's absolutely right. He was absolutely right. And my only regret about that period is that I wasn't a bit more grateful to Dave because he was spending what was effectively his own company's money keeping Colin and I alive at, at not, not inconsiderable cost. Um, and instead of us, you know, phoning him up and saying, really appreciate this, Dave, I'm like, no, you know, 
blah, blah, blah. We just sort of took it all for granted. And when you're young, uh, you just tend to. Um, we used to go in and he'd buy us lunch and we wouldn't thank him for that either. Mm. You know, we just thought that's what managers did. They buy you lunch. Um, so I feel a bit full of regret that I never properly said thanks to Dave. Um, he probably thought we were a right pair of little shits. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there we are I, I suppose if, if we had have had a monster hit He would have made a lot of money And that's yeah. that's the way the business works But there's still no harm in saying thanks now and again No, no, no it, it, And I guess because of your age You're probably just going around going Well nobody understands us This is brilliant What we're writing is absolute gold I can't believe that nobody gets it Rather than you know, thank yeah, you some, thanking somebody that's for true. I think when you're young, you think everything you do is great yeah. because you did it. Um, I think it's easy to feel like that. And that it's good in a way because, because it's that commitment and enthusiasm that can power you through some very lean times when you're young. As you get older, you get jaded and, you, you know, maybe you don't get jaded, maybe you just get real. I don't know, um, or, or a bit of both. And then you, you know, you don't have that massive enthusiasm that powers you through unless you're continuing to be successful because then your success um, gives you that self-confidence to that self-confidence to think that everything you do is great again. Um I don't really have that. I, I tend to think that everything I do is rubbish until somebody tells me otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> is this any good? You know, that's the thing I say most of all, I think, at home and in the studio. Is this any good? You know. Here's, here's the thing then. This, this might sound like a really disparaging comment, but I'm going to say it anyway. Because um, we've known each other long enough. Right, okay. Go on um, but, just my mic. Yeah, just your, just your <laughs> mic. This one's, this one's going to be a belter. No. Um, <laughs> is it a fair point that you can't write a hit? And I don't mean that in a way anything other than, you know, do you write classics rather than hits? Who, me? Hmm. Oh. Well, I think um, a question like that, the answer to a question like that is borne out by history. Mm. I haven't and therefore I, I can't mm. or certainly can't so far. Or if I can, um, I haven't come across a person, you know, a producer or a team of musicians who could record that idea in such a way that it could be a hit. Hmm. Because hits tend to be as well that they they t they tend to have a sound which chimes with what's what's in at the moment for the most part, whether it's the sixties or the seventies or the eighties or the nineties. There's a kind of a sound that's in, uh, and that changes from time to time. You know the way it changed from the eighties to the nineties, from from everything being quite synthy and synthetic to 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 Oasis and Blur, kind of re rewriting what what the 90s was going to sound like uh, and suddenly that became the sound and 
you know, and the hits were going to sound more like that and less like the Human League and Yazoo or, or whatever, which was how hits sounded in the 80s. Um, so it's about... It's about a sound. It's a, you know, I'm sure if I got together with Farrell Williams, we'd bash something out that'd be a hit. It's just persuading him to <laughs> to, to answer the phone. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so he's. There are certain people in every era that have kind of got the sound and and the formula and can bash hits out. Um, apart from Nile Rodgers, who always could and still can. <laughs> I, I guess, and we keep coming back to it, but I've always wondered what would happen if. It sounds horrible, this, and I don't mean it, and it's got nothing to do with the way it was produced, but. If you'd, if no one can had been given to to somebody who was in that space, for whom charted in the top five just because of who they were, would no one can have been a hit with somebody else? Don't know. I mean, there's no denying Chris Neal's a great pop producer. He was all, you know, he's had hits as long as his arm, and and um, he had hits with Mike and the Mechanics um, in that same era. Mm. And so maybe if no one can had come out five years earlier, um, even with even without a different different team being involved, if Chris had, if we if we'd written that and Chris had produced it five years earlier, that might have been a different story. Mm. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with the song or the sound of the song. I think it was just you know it was re- released into the jaws of of. Britpop, and it wasn't Britpop. It was, as a sound, perhaps it was just a little bit old hat. Mm. I mean, if if you know, if a big time boy band were to cover that song now, they'd probably have a monster hit with it. I think that's what I was getting at. I think I I, I don't know if maybe thinking of the time that came out, I don't know if the sound was maybe that far out. I just wonder if, and, I, and I'm, I'm probably getting my ears all all wrong. Uh, but I mean, I remember Richard Marks had a huge song called Hazard, and I've got a sneaking suspicion that will will have been around about that sort of time. And I can't help thinking, if you'd given that to somebody like Richard Hazard, just on the back of that, would it have just gone? And you know, I don't know. I don't know. It's it's a, it's one of those things you never you're never going to know. And it, it, it you're, comes you're from... kind of sliding into music business. Think though, yeah, I am. I am you take you take building blocks of what's yeah. already. You know, what's already successful, and go. Oh, if we were to do that, and you know, graft this onto there, we'd yeah. have a stone wall here. And sometimes that that is borne out, and other times it isn't. But nobody knows anything. That's I suppose. I suppose as well that kind of happens when there's nothing more interesting going on. And to your point from earlier, when something interesting comes along that chimes with the public, all bets are off. Yeah, and everything becomes redefined at that point. Mm. And, that, you know, it's a bit like what's happened with, you know, with grime and all of that. Could anyone have seen that coming? Uh, but now that's a very big thing. Uh, and, you know, people are either nuts about it or don't understand it and don't get it. Um, you know, in another 10 years, people will look back and it'll seem mainstream. Mm. Mm. Anyway, so... So where were we? So well, right. Well, so, there's this eighteen month period where you where you effectively you've you've gone from CBS 
So the album's out there and what have you. So is the material then? Is there a because if you you were must have been writing relatively we solidly wrote, in that period. We wrote we wrote four or five songs in that mm. period that we took and played to Dave, and you know that he. He kind of went, well, you, you better, you know, go away and write a bit more. <laughs> <laughs> and we had a few, we had a few things. We had a, we had a song called Emotional um, that I don't even know if I've got a demo of anyway. I bet Colin's got all these because they, they were very precious things to Colin and he probably still sits cross-legged and plays them now and dreams of what perhaps could have been. I don't know if that's true or harsh or whether it's just me um but you know from for me um i just kind of drew a line under it um at the point more or less at the point where dave lost interest where dave margerison said that's that yeah i thought that's it i can't do this anymore i can't be judged i can't think of music as some kind of an exam um, you know, because it was just like that. It was like doing your exams all the time, writing songs and and then playing them to people and them being judged was just like an exam. It was like the rest of your life depends on this song and, and, and on this moment and on what this person thinks of it. And I couldn't live like that anymore. And I thought, you know what, I'm done with all of this. Um because it's not fun anymore. And I got to a point where I'd got an upright piano in the back room in Anglefield Green where we lived in the little house, 54 Middle Hill. And I used to walk past that piano and as I walked past it and my eye caught the, the black and white of the keyboard, I used to feel my stomach not up. Um, and I thought, well, this is, you know, I thought this isn't right. This isn't the way to to be. I don't want to. Yeah. I don't want this relationship with music. I'd rather not be a musician anymore. And that was the that was the point in you know at the back end of nineteen eighty eight, where we decided we would we would sell the house, we would move to Derbyshire, which was pretty, where houses at that time were dirt cheap. We'd buy a cottage, we'd live mortgage-free, I'd get a relatively low-paid job, uh, we'd bring the kids up and that'd be that. I'm done with music, Don't can't stand it anymore, don't want anything to do with it. So we made a for sale sign um, and it was in the shed and we were about to stick it in the garden you know, quite literally about to knock it in and sell sell um, 54 Middle Hill and move north. And I thought, well, what will I do? And uh, so I thought, well, who are the guys who always seem happy? And it seemed to me that the, the people I'd, I ran into, they weren't marketing men, they weren't uh, salesmen, they weren't you know, business, corporate executives. They weren't shopkeepers. They were usually either... Postmen always seemed happy to me. Milkmen always seemed happy. And butchers, weirdly, always seemed happy. You know, the happy-go-lucky guys that I'd run into in my life <laughs> were either butchers, postmen 
or, or milkmen. And I thought, well, I don't think I could cope with I'd worked at a butcher's. I'd had a Saturday job there when I went back up in Doncaster when I was about 19. And, and just the kind of that undercurrent of blood and gore and bacteria and... <laughs> It's a certain smell as well, isn't it? <laughs> there is. I thought, you know, and and a lot of you're always you're always cleaning. There's always carbolic soap and disinfectant mm. at the end of the day. And I thought, oh, I don't think I could commit myself to a life of that, even though butchers always seem happy. Um, I thought it's either postman or milkman for me because I, and both of these professions, they get up really early. They they do what they got to do, and then they're done by about lunchtime. And I thought that that could be the way forward. Then I can spend some time on my children and watch watch my kids grow up, and watch my little girl grow up. Because I'd, I'd only got Sophie at that point, but I think Niall was on the way. And I thought that was it. I'll be a milkman. Um, you know, I'll be piece of cake you know you don't have to think it'll be so, make such a nice change not have to not to have to think you know not to have yeah. to live on my wits and my creative output but just do something that is just piss easy not necessarily pleasant but you know on a cold rainy morning at 4am when you're rolling out of bed but at least you can get it out of the way and have the rest of the day to yourself mm. That Apart was from the my... occasional yogurt or a cottage cheese. It's it's <laughs> yeah relatively straightforward, isn't it? I'd have had to have been careful not to get invited in. To be honest, uh, that that could have proved proved a strain. Uh, he said, um, but provided I yeah could have resisted being invited in by the ladies of the village. Um, who let's face oh I shouldn't say anything. No, I'm not gonna say what I nearly said. Um so I, that was my master plan. That was mm. my master plan. I thought, get real, live in a little house, have one of those jobs that those blokes have who always seem to be happy. And uh I'm bollocks to all of this. And that was the plan. And we were we were going ahead with that plan when the phone rang and um I think it was Warren Livesey asking me if I'd be interested in playing, or it might have been Matt Johnson himself asking me if I'd be interested in playing piano on his next tour. And that was a shocker. Um, I don't think that happened till the January of... It, it all happened at once in early January of 89. Um we actually went and looked at little villages in Derbyshire over Christmas of '88. So we were we were very serious about moving up there. Do you remember whereabouts? No, you know Hathersidge, I think that right. sort of area. That's Little John, isn't it? Not Little John. That's uh, yeah, it is, isn't it? Who 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 got who was buried there? Oh, one of the Robin Hood characters is, is supposed what, to be buried in in, in Hathersidge. Yeah, oh, oh bugger me. Yeah. There we are. Yes, and yeah, nice part of the world. Havis is absolutely beautiful. Yeah, well, that's that's what we thought. We'll go somewhere pretty, pretty mm. and cheap, and mm. uh, and you've got Chatsworth and Bakewell and all manner of places around there that are really pleasant. Yeah, it's beautiful. So that was the master plan. Then Matt Johnson rang up, and then you know I went went to Shoreditch and 
had a meeting with with Matt and in his apartment, and said, "Yeah," and and I suddenly thought, "Oh, that could bring me back to music. Mm. It, it could, you know, instead of having that." churning feeling in my stomach every time I looked at the piano I, I, I could I could have a better feeling um, I could be in this really hip band no pressure other than to you know get my chops together for the tour but then once I've done that it's nothing to do with me really I'm just in you know in Matt's backing band sort of thing um, you know with Johnny Marr on guitar you know, he's, he'd made he'd made a few great records. Soul Mining's great. Um, Infected was great. Um, Mind Bomb, I wasn't that familiar with, but I would have had to get myself damn familiar with it. So I thought that could be the way back in. So it was like, oh, hang on, don't put the sign up yet. Leave it in the shed. And... Uh, Maybe maybe I could get into that and become this kind of ace session keyboard player because I'll be cool after I've done the the the, the tour. You know, I'll be I'll be super cool and I'll be fashionable and maybe everybody will want want to give me work. So that was what I was pondering when the phone rang and and Marillion wanted to meet me, and that all happened in early January of eighty nine. Well, I think it's a good point to stop on a cliffhanger, and then what we can do is we can come well, back everybody to that knows what happened. And, and to see what happens next. Will he you know, join? Will he join? Will he become super cool? I mean, no. I'm, 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 I, I almost can't wait to find out. Um, but we'll, we'll nip into a bit of diary there. Uh, but we will pick this back up because there's a lot of people have asked about a bit more detail about that those first few days, weeks and months with, with Marillion. So I think we'll, we'll pick that up a bit further down the line. Um, but diary, diary first, um, last little bit of Paris and then moving out of uh, a, bit, a bit more France. And I think we might even get as far as Belgium. I've got a sneaking suspicion we might get that far. Oh, Belgium. Belgium. I believe oh, it's Belgium. I, I, but it's, it was yesterday when I read it and I have slept since then. That was so, Ghent. Yeah, we go, we go to Ghent. We go to Ghent. So I'm going to hand over to you. <laughs> okay. Here comes a bit of Europe. Da 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 da. da, 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 da. <laughs> I was at dinner with uh, Johnny Tempest or whatever he was called. Joey, I think. Joey. Which is it's it's sad that between us we know his name. <laughs> well, not in my case because I've had dinner with him. It's sad that <laughs> I can't remember his name. Sunday, 1st of May, Paris to Besançon, day off. Rose around 12.30 and ordered coffee on room service. It was another sunny day, so I set off with my laptop to sunbathe in the terrace garden within the quadrangle of the hotel. I was joined by Mark, Ian and Pete. Today is workers' day 
and we could hear what sounded like a riot going on in the Place de la Republique outside. Mark brought a bottle of champagne from his room and as he poured out the glasses in the sunshine amid the ornamental gardens, I couldn't help imagining Louis XVI in similar mood just before the peasants came over the wall for his head. I later went outside to have a look, but to my surprise it was just a small crowd with a big PA system. Returned to the hotel for a spot of light lunch. Steve R was in my room watching the fateful Italian Grand Prix at Imola, where Ayrton Senna was to crash to his death later in the afternoon. Checked out of the Holiday Inn and set off to Besançon around 4.30. Unfortunately, the workers were marching through the part of Paris we needed to pass through in order to leave, so we were diverted endlessly and couldn't get out of the city until after 6. It was 11.15 in the evening when we eventually staggered into the Hotel Mercure in Besançon to find the crew in the restaurant finishing dinner. Tim Brickus was looking a little better after a bad bout of tonsillitis in Paris and everyone else seemed fine. The atmosphere was a little subdued on account of Senna's death. It's peculiar how his fame had made us all feel for him. I went for a short walk over the bridge into town in the mild night air. There was no one about and cars kept slowing down to check me out. I think they thought I was a girl. It wasn't a very pleasant feeling. What a shame so many men are so predatory. If we all treated women as human beings, we wouldn't end up scaring them out of our company. It's only at times like these that I get an insight into what men put women through. Monday, 2nd of May, Besançon, Le Montjoy. Woke up to yet another beautiful morning, threw my windows wide open, ordered a coffee and drank it, enjoying the clean air of the provincial south of France. Gathered my things together and walked down to the river. Bumped into Steve R and we walked down to the town together to find a cafe in the sunshine. We found a suitable place and a waiter emerged and said, Good morning, Steve. What would you like? Fame at last. He said he'd been at the Cambridge show. Small world. Mark and Wes wandered past and joined us. I left them with Steve and returned to the riverside to write this diary and enjoy the morning. There is a waterfall at this point on the river with public gardens at the bank, a little like the ham end of Richmond-on-Thames. There was an old man fishing from the fresh water, teeming with little fish, perfectly visible from where I was watching. I sat on the lawns amid climbing roses until a man with a strimmer showered me with grass cuttings and sent me running for a vacant bench. Ian M appeared and we chatted for a while about how lucky we are to live like this and how it's important not to get too caught up in the good things that don't happen at the expense of enjoying the good things that do. He was going to find a cafe, so I accompanied him back into town where we bumped into Pete T, who gave us directions to the town square, where we had coffee, before returning to the hotel to leave for soundcheck. The venue was like a garage, I suppose, just very basic and concrete. I sat outside in a children's playground enjoying the sun. After soundcheck we returned to the hotel, and I sat outside under a tree writing my diary, in the last hour of direct sunlight. 
The show at Besançon was a little frustrating. It was the most restless audience since Hamburg. There were people chattering in all the quiet, tender moments, but I managed to control the extent to which it got to me. Once we were into the encores, things like that weren't really noticeable, so it was all okay. It was inevitably a come down after Paris, just as Geneva had felt after Nice. I met people outside after the show who said this was their favourite show of the ones they'd seen. So once again, what do I know? Signed stuff, gave my t-shirt away and got on the bus to go overnight with the crew to Grance. Tuesday, 3rd of May. Grance, Le Cirque. Staggered from the bus around nine into yet another lovely morning. I was in some kind of cobbled square next to a round building, reminiscent of a scaled-down Albert Hall or a circus. I went inside to find the crew shaking their heads and scratching their chins. It was small and it wasn't going to be easy. Drank a cup of Adrian's tea and went to the Hotel de la Paix with the runner. Checked in and went for a walk. I was expecting a bit more from Rass than I managed to find. In the end, I returned to the hotel and ordered coffee and reception while I wrote up my diary before going to my room and to bed. Woke up around two and dithered till three, then wandered over to the venue. It was only a five-minute walk, where I ate caprese salad, my favourite thing. There was still time to kill, so I went outside to discover the fan club girls in the street. I was hoping to have a look around Grass Cathedral, and Isabel knew the way. And Sophie wanted to take some more pictures, so five of us tramped across town. Notre Dame, Reims, wasn't quite what I expected. It must have been beautiful once, but it seems to have fallen into dilapidation. I later found out from Gerard that the cathedral was firebombed by the Germans during the First World War. The pitifully few stained glass windows that remain are very rich and intricate. All the windows must have been like this in the pre-revolutionary days when the kings of France were crowned here. For the most part, the windows are plain glass now. The stone decorations and statues on the front fascia of the building have also suffered through bombardment and erosion. Gerard told me the roof was rebuilt completely between the wars. I lit candles for my loved ones and then wandered around the cathedral, past confessionals and a statue of Jeanne d'Arc, the local and national heroine. Sorry, Jeanne, nothing to do with me. And Sophie took pics of me against the central aisle. We wandered back to the venue so I could sound check, eating ice creams to accompany the warm late afternoon sunshine. The crew had succeeded in cramming our show into the little venue and the sound on stage was okay. Walked back to the hotel with Mark and called home. Dizzy and the little ones are all fine. They'd been to Oxford for the day, enjoying the spring heat wave. I said hello to Sophie and Niall. Had a quick bath before returning to the gig. The show went well. The audience were much quieter than Paris, of course, and the average age seemed a lot higher. There seemed to be quite a few people over 35 which is unusual. <laughs> Kill for that these days. Perhaps a reflection of the venue, normally used for classical concerts. We eventually stirred them up. Afterwards, I showered and returned to the hotel, 
wandered out into the street for a half with Mark and was spotted by a table of students who invited me to join them. Chatted a while, but the air had turned a little chilly, so I said bye and went back and to bed. Wednesday, 4th of May, Ghent Vorwit, I think. I'm going to move to Kent and dig myself a chalk pit, said Mark Kay. The phone rang at 10.30. It was Nick to tell me I didn't need to get up until 11. At 11.30, we were to meet Gerard and Jean-Louis, who, as a parting gesture, had arranged a private tour around the champagne cellars of the Ruinart House, the original and oldest of all the champagne houses. It was quite something. The cellars were originally chalk pits dug underground by the Romans to provide foundations for the city walls around 2 AD. What they left behind were a series of massive bottle-shaped chambers in the white chalk rock about 40 feet under the ground, connected to each other by passageways. The position of the chambers is such that the temperature inside them remains constant at 10 degrees, irrespective of the seasons above. 1740 years later, Monsieur Ruinard realised these conditions were heaven-sent for maturing champagne and moved in. Today, there are several million bottles stacked in wooden racks down there, most of which are turned by hand every day. The place has its own wonderful aroma, a combination of wine and the musty, earthy smell of stone. Quite monastic. And who should be our guide here in the heart of Champagne's original and most distinguished house? Not a crusty countryside French Champagne historian, but an urbane English middle-aged moneypenny from Ilkeston, near Nottingham, where I spent much of my first year degree. God alone knows how she got here. It's like a coal miner's daughter ending up selling old masters. We joined Gerard and Jean-Louis in a farewell glass of 1986 Dom. I'm by no means a connoisseur of champagne, but even to my Philistine palate, it wasn't half bad. Before climbing into the hot dog van for the four-hour drive to Ghent. We got lost and drove round the centre of Ghent, trying to find the venue. Ghent centre is very old and almost entirely unspoiled. Very Dutch in feel to an Englishman who doesn't go to Belgium much with canals flanked by distinctive, narrow, tall houses. After soundcheck, I went for a wander down the cobbled streets and found a cafe in a square by a fountain, where I drank coffee and wrote this diary, which seems to take all my spare time lately. There seemed to be much excitement here about us. I was constantly spotted in the street and asked for autographs, and the show was sold out. It was to be a late show, 1030 so I snoozed on the bus for an hour before getting strapped, wrapped and dressed. John A. had flown in and told me that Pete Townsend and Bill Kerbishley, the Who's manager, have seen video footage of me and are interested in the idea of me playing the lead in the stage production of Tommy next year in Germany. Bloody hell, Pete Townsend knows who I am. I'll believe it when he calls. The show was a bit of a strange one. Perhaps it was the relative lateness of the hour. I was somewhat phased and couldn't quite settle down. 
The crowd was listening hard to the brave music, but somehow I didn't quite feel in touch with them. I noticed that while the front rows almost entirely consisted of boys at the beginning of the show, there were girls filtering in as the show progressed, until by the encores, at least half of the audience immediately in front of me were now women. Someone pressed a silver chain into my hand during slange. Quite a valuable one by the look of it. I'm wearing it right now. Thank you, whoever you are. Everyone seemed happy at the end, and I signed quite a lot of souvenirs in the street afterwards, before climbing onto the crew bus to go overnight to Rastatt in Germany. As I reread this diary in 2014, I'm struck once again by the huge change the internet has brought about in daily life. I'd forgotten the name of the champagne cellars we visited. I knew it was a name like Ruinuit. At the time of writing, I would have had to phone a Frenchman in the hope he'd heard of it, or go to a wine merchant's. With three clicks of my trackpad on my laptop, I'd not only discovered the name, but was looking at a short video tour of the place, all without getting out of my chair. If I was so inclined, I could have stayed almost motionless, bought air tickets and onward travel, arranged a tour around the estate and dropped an email to the owner. <laughs> And we're back. Uh, and we're back from a bit of Europe. Um, which which end of France, beginning of Belgium. Uh, nice little section of diary. But the bit I'm going to have to go back to was the bit right at the beginning, which was, as you were leaving Paris, that was the day that uh, the news came through of Ant and Senna. It um, was. We, we were in the Holiday in Place de la Republique, um, and Rothers was watching it in his room because he's he's mad for the Formula One and the cars, um, and I think I think I joined Rothers in in his room. It was a beautiful sunny afternoon. All the windows were wide open because it was it was glorious the weather, the way I remember it, um, and we were watching. It was Imola, wasn't it? We were watching the Grand Prix. Mm. It was Italy, of course. Um, <laughs> And um, and he crashed. Yeah, he just he just went straight down. I, th I think it was um it was a suspension strut. I think that snapped. I don't know if it that snapped and caused the crash or whether it was damaged in the crash. But it flew through the air and and hit him. It was a chance in a million, and he would have survived the crash had it not been for a piece of metal. That I think hit him in the head and did for him. We didn't know this. We just knew he'd crashed and we knew it was serious and had loaded, loaded him into an ambulance and everything. And then we had to leave to go to Besançon. Um, and it was when we arrived in, in Besançon that we heard the news from one of the crew, actually, that, that he died. So that was a very, a very sombre arrival in, in Besançon. Um, because Senna was just amazing, wasn't he? He was, he was, he was an off-the-scale amazing racing driver, and um, he he was sort of revered. I mean, the, the thing about Brazilians is they, if you make it in Brazil, you're sort of revered like a god, aren't you? Um, 
and and he was really, I think, to this day, still revered mm. uh, by the Brazilian people and 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 by Formula One enthusiasts alike as having been something really special. The fact that he was a beautiful human being, uh, you know, physically, it n- never does any harm. No. Um, you know, so he was glamorous. He did a lot of he did a lot of work for institutions that, that looked after the poor in Brazil because he could afford to, and and so he was very loved. And uh, it's a shame, it's a shame we lost him. But like everybody else that we lost young, he'll always be young. Yeah. He won't he won't become one of those old fellas who ends up commentating on world of sport. Or <laughs> 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 or whatever he'll just be young and beautiful forever um so he's lost but he's still he's still with us mm. and do you think i mean obviously we end up moving i mean brave such a big thing and it's and it's still in the moment but we end up with afraid of sunlight as the album next and there's a lot on afraid of sunlight about celebrity and the downsides of celebrity and you know those those people who maybe you know were taken from us young did, would would center have worked its way subconsciously into that or? i don't doubt it yeah I, I think there was that was a period where it was just going bam 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 or or, or it was to me um there'd been there'd been the loss of him there was the loss of cobain there was, uh, you know, the disgrace of of, of O.J. Simpson. There was um, the there was the fall from grace of Mike Tyson. Um, so th- there were a lot of sporting heroes that were suddenly falling um, from their pedestal. And then there were, you know, there were there were musicians um, passing away. In that period, um, was I'm, I'm, I can't remember whether Jeff Buckley was in amongst that or whether he was later. Um, but they all fed into what was to become Afraid of Sunlight, in mm. a way. They were, you know, particularly Gaspacho and King. Um, they were the two, really. They were the two sort of bookends in Afraid of Sunlight that that dealt with the fall from grace um, of of the monster celebrity, uh, you mm. know, and the pressure that they have to live with and the, and the sense of... the sense of dishonesty you live with and the sense of, of how no... you know, how, how you're not understood. Um, thankfully, I've never had to really cope with that. I've never been so famous that I thought, you know, that I was opening newspapers and reading shit about me and and thinking, well, this has got nothing to do with me. This isn't even yeah. who I am, let alone what I've done. This is just made up stuff, you know, or, or it's stuff I've done that's been spun to sound in, entirely like another thing. And it's not me. I've never had that, but I can relate to it because I've sort of been close enough to it to value the fact that I've been left alone, really, for the most part. That's that's the that's the that's the way that that Marillion are lucky 
we we're just successful enough yeah. to be able to do our thing, um, not you, you know cre- create what we choose to create without without going back to how we live, you know, with without it feeling like an exam and without the uh, without the jury sitting there passing judgment over every song you write and oh no that's that's not that's not the right kind of thing go away do another one we don't have those pressures we're free creatively to just be selfish please ourselves you know we're dreadfully self-indulgent and we seem to get away with it um so we but at the same time we've never been so successful that we have to put up with all that other nonsense of people wetting their pants because they've seen us on TV, you know, mm. who, who don't really know much else about us. Um, we haven't had to deal with celebrity in inverted commas. Um, and we're, we're lucky that the people who do listen to us and the, and the fans we have got, they, they, they love us for what we are, yeah. not for what somebody's written about us or, or not because we've been on a chat show not because we've been been on graham norton um but for what we've done you know for what we've said and done um you know not because it was played on radio one or two or four or nine but but because they just found it for themselves and you know and it resonated with them and became important to them in that sense we're you know we we I think there's an awful lot of very famous people who who, who would who, who would who would swap with us, mm. or they would if they've got any sense. It's funny because that takes you right back almost to the beginning, which is the public knows. You know, the public knows when they hear a record that is going to mean something to them. They know when they hear a song or an album or they see a performance that is going to mean something to them long term. And in that respect. You're very lucky that the pub, you know, with the, the, not very lucky, but the public gets what you do. No, we are very lucky because there's a lot of talented people out there, and a lot of them you'll never hear of, and and don't have enough fans to make a living. Yeah. And when you don't have enough fans to make a living, um, what have you got? You you the clock's ticking. You've got a period of time before you you can't do it any longer because you're going to need a proper job. Well, you've got eighteen months before the manager says the run, the money's run out. Mm. Essentially, at you know, which you, point you, you're in the same boat. You need a proper yeah. job unless the phone rings and somebody says, "You know, do you want to come and do this?" Which I was fortunate happened to me. I um I was once staying in a hotel and Mike Tyson walked through the lobby. You're kidding? No. Wow. No, stay, would you believe of all places in Waltham Abbey? Really? Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, they used to do a lot of. Um, they went through a phase of booking loads of sportsmen around there to do various things. I don't know where he was, but he, he you know, in terms of the venue, he was going to talk at. But he, um, he, he walked through the lobby, um, and he's he's actually quite small in terms of height. Is he? Um, but he. You has, didn't tell him, did you? Uh, no, because he has. <laughs> he has the Oi, look of. <laughs> He has the look of a man who would rip your arm off and eat it. Yeah, he's, I'm sure he's, he does. Yeah, he's just—he completely disconnected from the world in a way that just felt really, really, really dangerous. 
Wow. Uh, uh, whilst not being that big. Mm. But, um, but yes. Um, I think he had more than the look. And I mean, <laughs> five, six feet away. Well, wandered through the lobby. Well, I, we, we have that in common in the sense that I had a similar experience, although opposite of, with, uh, was he called, what was his name? I can't remember his first name. Um, he was called Chavez and he was a Mexican world title holder. Hard as nails, used to, used to you know, used to do everybody in no time. <laughs> and uh, he was in the... Um, he was in the Hard Rock Cafe in Mexico City with the, the boxing promoter Don King, um, who, who were promoting. A f- they were they were doing some media event in the back room to promote a forthcoming world title fight, and he wandered out of the back room, and I was sitting eating a burger, and he stood next to me, and I'd got I'd got this world title boxer next to me uh, while I was eating my burger. And again, I looked. I kind of looked him up and down. And unlike Tyson, he really looked like like he didn't look like a hard case at all. He looked like a really lovely, easygoing, happy-go-lucky sort of bloke. <laughs> I remember thinking, God, you'd never know, would you? That he could, you know, he <laughs> he could kill you, and you wouldn't even <laughs> you wouldn't even have time to brace yourself. He'd hit you so hard and so fast. I didn't get that vibe from Tyson at all. No. Well, he was the opposite. No inner Byron going on there uh, (laughs) at all. Uh, You know, what you got, what you, everything you think about Mike Tyson was what I I thought when I was up close to him. Yeah, he's the sort of human pit bull, isn't he? Yeah. It's exactly, that's exactly it. He's he's that dog straining on a leash Mm. all, all the time, you know. Yeah, but, but anyway, on that, on that, you know, on potential violence, I think we'll leave it for this week. Leave it, leave it there. Um, you know, I'm not in a rush to run into Mike again. Um, uh, bless him. Though I saying that, that moment in the Hangover where he's uh, where he's playing the drums to Phil Collins is actually a moment of genius. Oh, I've not seen that. Not seen that. If you've not seen it, it's worth watching The Hangover just for the moment where Mike Tyson's in a hotel suite and he's miming the drumming to In the Air Tonight. It's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. It's worth it. You'll find it. Just search for it. It's just phenomenal. But we'll, we'll leave it there because I've, 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 it's, it's my fault. I've got to jump and do a, something at, at 10 o'clock. But um, we'll be back again next week, folks, for a, a, a bit of something else. Maybe maybe continue this story next week with the with the... The intro to Mar- the world of Marillion next week. Did he join? Did he join? Will he, won't he? Yes. Good night. Did he become him. the coolest man on the planet? <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Won't he and their son, Willie. Right. right. Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye. See you, soon. See you next week. Oh, hear you next week. No, you won't. No, none of those. Hear me next week. That's it. Last year, Watson. David Clark Ian Sloan Mary Gilson and Michelle Dwellet Thank you very much For subscribing
ATCD One day I'll play you sounds that can't be made See you next week Maybe I'll play them then Thank you for subscribing Thank you for subscribing Thanks for listening to the Corona Diaries. It featured Steve Hogarth with the insights and me, Ant Short, with the questions. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider subscribing and maybe leaving a review as this will help others find it. You could even share with other like-minded souls, should the mood take you. This has been an A Short Stories production.